0: I'm Scott Daniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I appreciate those who send messages via email or social media expressing appreciation for the podcast. Uh, the feedback is very helpful. Let me encourage you to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps to spread the word about the podcast and let others know that it exists. What would it mean for our worship to be truly biblical? That's a question I want to address in this episode of By the Waters of Babylon. Our task as churches is to make disciples. This is what Christ commanded in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, And this happens when we use the all-sufficient Word of God to shape the minds and hearts of believers in our congregation. And that recognition highlights, then, the significance of corporate worship in particular as one of the primary means, if not the most significant means, through which God forms us into mature disciple worshipers. But that is only if Our worship is formed and shaped by the word of God. Yet because modern Christianity has come to understand discipleship as merely a sort of didactic endeavor, and modern Christianity considers corporate worship as merely an expressive enterprise, much of modern Christianity has lost the biblical means of virtue formation through scripture-informed worship. In particular, scripture formed liturgies, that is, the order of the elements of our worship, and scripture informed elements themselves, including music. A couple of weeks ago, I addressed the fact that the Bible itself, the shape of scripture, not only its truth claims, shapes Christian living, because the Bible is more than merely didactic propositional statements, it is art. It is poetry. It is literature. And therefore, the shape of Scripture needs to inform the shape of our liturgical acts, the order of our worship, and each element within the worship service, from the preaching, to the prayers, to, of course, the Scripture reading, and including the music. And so in this episode, I want to discuss how we should allow Scripture to form our liturgy and form the elements of our worship, including music. If the primary purpose of corporate worship is the edification of believers, God forming us into mature disciple worshipers, then first, even the structure of our services should follow what God has given us in Scripture. It's not just any old liturgies, it's scripture-formed liturgies that will have the kind of transforming power that we're after. God made clear this purpose in scripture when he instituted corporate worship assemblies in the Old Testament. He established a structural pattern there that continues also into the New. In the Old Testament, God often called these assemblies of worship memorials meaning more than just a sort of passive remembrance of something, but actually a reenactment of God's works in history for his people, such that the worshipers are shaped over and over again by what God has done. Beginning at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 through 24, God instituted a particular order of what the Old Testament frequently calls the solemn assemblies of Israel. That order reflects what I like to call a theologic, in which in the assembly, God's people reenact, through the order of what they do, God's atoning work on their behalf. The order is something like this. God reveals himself and calls his people to worship. God's people then acknowledge and confess their need for forgiveness. God provides atonement. God speaks his word to his people. God's people then respond with commitment toward the Lord. And then finally, God hosts a celebratory feast. This same theologic characterized many aspects of Old Testament worship, including the progression of the sacrifices within the tabernacle assemblies. And it also appears in the dedication of Solomon's temple in Second Chronicles 15-17 through 17 and more. In each case, the structure of the worship assemblies follows a theological order in which the worshipers reenact the covenant relationship that they have with God through the atonement He provided, culminating with a feast that celebrates the fellowship that they enjoy with God because of what He has done for them. Now, while the particular rituals present in Hebrew worship certainly pass away for the New Testament church, the book of Hebrews tells us that these Old Testament rituals were a copy and shadow of heavenly things. And so while the shadows fade away, the theologic of corporate worship remains the same for the New Testament church. In our worship, we are reenacting God's atoning work on our behalf when we gather for corporate worship. And significantly, the book of Hebrews teaches that when we gather for services of worship through Christ, we are actually joining with the real worship taking place in the heavenly temple of which those Old Testament rituals were a mere shadow. And so it's important to recognize that the two records that we have in scripture of heavenly worship also follow the same theologic that was modeled in the Old Testament. For instance, when Isaiah was given a vision of heavenly worship in Isaiah chapter 6, the order of what happens there mirrors the same theologic as that given to Israel for its worship. And likewise, when John is given a similar vision of heavenly worship in Revelation 4 and 5, the order of what happens is the same. And so from creation to consummation, the corporate worship of God's people is a memorial, a reenactment of the theologic of true worship, of heavenly worship. God's call for his people to commune with him through the sacrifice of atonement that he has provided, listening to his word, responding with praise and obedience, and culminating with a beautiful picture of perfect communion with God in the form of a feast. This reenactment in a corporate worship service of God's work for us is what will progressively edify us over time to live out our relationship with God through Christ as his mature disciple worshipers. Now, there has been in recent years somewhat of a recovery of this emphasis of corporate worship as disciple-forming covenant renewal works like Brian Chapel's Christ-Centered Worship, Robbie Castleman's Story-Shaped Worship, Mike Cosper's Rhythms of Grace, and Jamie Smith's Cultural Liturgies Trilogy, uh, and his more recent book, You Are What You Love. All of these have argued in recent years that the liturgical shape of corporate worship forms believers, and so the liturgical shape should be structured based on the shape of Scripture broadly, and the gospel specifically. And so I'm very thankful for that recent emphasis in books about the disciple-forming power of gospel-shaped worship. But what has not yet been recovered, in my opinion, is a recognition of the disciple-forming power of scripture-formed music. In fact, both Brian Chapel and Mike Cospers in their books explicitly deny music's formative role. While they argue that the narrative arc of liturgy is formative, aesthetic forms within the liturgy, like music, they believe to be neutral and relative. But on the contrary, I would suggest that since Scripture is itself expressed through various aesthetic forms, what kinds of poetic and aesthetic expressions that God chose to use in the communication of his truth in Scripture must inform the kinds of contemporary musical expressions that Christians produce as we communicate the gospel and disciple believers into acceptable worshipers of God. What is important about a corporate worship service is not just what is said from the pulpit or the doctrine of the hymns, for there are certain aspects of Christian piety that is inarticulable. Much of Christian piety is learned only through doing, And that is what liturgy is. It is learning through doing. And that is what art is. The purpose of art is to incarnate values. And we experience those values as we participate in the art. That's the power of aesthetics. And so my argument extends beyond just the shape of the liturgy itself to the other aesthetic forms employed in corporate worship. The liturgies and art forms of Christian worship embody and form certain aspects of Christian discipleship in a way that nothing else can. Just like scripture-formed liturgies are what will transform us into mature followers of Christ, so it's not just any songs, but scripture-formed songs that will accomplish Christian formation. In contrast to other recent authors, James K.A. Smith explicitly argues this in his Cultural Liturgies trilogy, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, and Awaiting the King, as well as his recent more popular treatment of the subject, You Are What You Love. In these works, Smith addresses both the overall narrative arc of the service of Christian worship, and what he calls the concrete received practices that constitute elements of the enacted narrative. And so as to the former, Smith suggests following historic Christian tradition in which, quote, the practices of Christian worship reflect the plot line of the gospel that the liniments of Christian worship rehearse the storyline of scripture, as we've been talking about. But as to the latter, Smith argues that we must concern ourselves not just with the what of Christian worship, that is, the content, but also the how, that is, the poetics. Smith is worth quoting at length here because I want to develop and build on his argument. This is what he says in Imagining the Kingdom. He says, There is a reason to our rhymes a logic carried in the meter of our hymns and the shape of our gestures. Worship innovations that are inattentive to this may end up adopting forms that forfeit precisely those aspects of worship that sanctify perception by forming the imagination. Hence, wise worship planning and leadership is not only discerning about content— the lyrics of songs, the content of the pastoral prayer, the message of the sermon, but also discerning about the kinesthetic meaning of the form of our worship. We will be concerned not only with what, but also with the how, because Christian faith is not only a knowing that, but a kind of knowing how that is absorbed in the between of our incarnate significance. Because meter and tune, each means in its own irreducible way, for example, the form of our songs is as important as the content. Smith goes on to say, Worship wisdom requires that we be attentive to the practical sense of aesthetic forms, lest we end up singing lyrics that confess Jesus is Lord, accompanied by a tune that means something very different. Worship that intends to be formative, and more specifically, worship that intends to foster an encounter with God that transforms our imagination and hence sanctifies our perception, must be attentive to and intentional about the aesthetics of human understanding. What Smith argues there builds directly from what I have already argued regarding the nature of discipleship and the nature of Scripture itself. What art forms are chosen to express God's truth are of utmost importance since they express not just theological facts, but those facts imagined in certain ways. Just like liturgy is a narrative drama on a macro level that shapes those who enact that drama, so works of art are micro-dramas. The artist, through the various aesthetic devices that he employs, creates a little drama into which we enter and then experience for ourselves that drama and are thus formed by it. For example, not one of us has journeyed through Middle-earth, battled orcs, resisted the power of the One Ring, or defeated Sauron. But in reading the Lord of the Rings, we can experience those things as if we had done them ourselves, and thus are formed by those experiences. Likewise, when we sing, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, we experience for ourselves what it's like to be God's people in exile, and thus are formed by that experience. That's the power of art, all art literature, drama, painting, poetry, song, they don't just allow us to express what we have already personally experienced. They also shape our responses through portraying powerfully formative realities that we may not have actually experienced for ourselves. And so what is at stake here is the very knowledge and worship of God. If works of art express particular ways of imagining God, then it's quite possible to express through art an imagination of God that does not correspond to how he chose to communicate himself in Scripture, even if the propositional content of the work of art is technically accurate. Most evangelicals today view art forms as simply pretty packaging for truth, or at best a way to energize the truth. Worship music, for example, is just a way to make truth interesting and engaging in worship. But imaginative forms are not incidental to truth. They are essential to the truth, expressly because they are fundamental to the way Scripture expresses truth. And so art forms help to express the imaginative aspect of truth in ways that propositional statements alone cannot. They communicate not just the what of biblical content, but also how that content is imagined. And so the kinds of imaginative forms that God chose to communicate his truth in scripture should shape our art forms. The Bible's aesthetics should be the source of our contemporary worship aesthetics. Choices of what art forms we will use to express God's truth and worship him are not merely about what is pleasing, authentic, or engaging. What forms we choose for our worship must be based on the criterion of whether they are true, whether they correspond to God's reality as it is imagined in his word. And so if those writing contemporary worship music desire to accurately reflect the meaning of scripture in the songs that they compose, such that believers are transformed by the primary means the spirit of God has chosen for transformation, his word, then they must give careful attention to the aesthetic correspondence between scripture's meaning and the contemporary form. What I believe that we need to concern ourselves with is what both Kevin Van Hooser and Nicholas Woltersdorf call fittingness. Voltersdorf defines fittingness as similarity across modalities. Modalities are different forms of expression, literature, music, rhetoric, architecture, drama, and visual arts, those sorts of things. And so what he means by fittingness is that the character of one aesthetic expression can be similar to the character of another aesthetic expression, even across kinds of art forms. And far from being something that only philosophers of aesthetics can do, we all observe these kinds of similarities across modalities instinctively. This is why, for instance, we can describe the character of music using terms more regularly associated with other art forms like visual, such as color, or tactile, such as soft or hard, or qualities of taste, like sweet, or spatial measurement, like high, low, short, or long. Music is not really blue or soft or sweet or low, but we all naturally recognize similarities across these modalities. And Woltersdorf also cites studies that show that these kinds of judgments are consistent across cultures we can naturally recognize universal similarities with regard to emotional expression and mood and tone because art communicates most naturally by reflecting common human experience especially human physical expressiveness With a bit of effort, we can fairly instinctively discern what art forms across modalities similarly express things like joy, lament, sobriety, reverence, or fear, or even more nuanced meanings and moods that cannot be precisely defined with words. And so attention to cross-modal fittingness, what I like to call aesthetic correspondence, is how we can take the character of aesthetic literary devices and forms in Scripture and compare them to the character of other kinds of art forms, like music, in contemporary culture. We can determine the meaning that specific aesthetic forms or devices in Scripture embody, and then discern aesthetic forms, literary and musical, in our current cultural context that are fitting to Scripture, those that have similarity in meaning. This kind of emphasis requires that biblical interpreters and pastors and church musicians have both a thorough understanding of what various art forms in scripture are expressing, or at least be equipped with resources to help them understand that, and a thorough understanding of the art forms of their current context, so that we can make the proper judgments concerning correspondence. There's a reason Aesthetics was part of the quadrivium in pre-modern education, and Martin Luther said he would not ordain a man to ministry who did not understand music. Theologians in the pre-modern era recognized that a healthy understanding of aesthetics was necessary for biblical interpretation, biblical preaching, biblical worship, and biblical formation. If we understand the formative role of corporate worship in making disciples, and if we consequently recognize that such disciple-forming corporate worship must be formed by Scripture— and we must be sure that our liturgies and how we express God's truth aesthetically in corporate worship is similar in meaning to how scripture expresses God's truth. Scripture must be the source and authority of both the content and forms of our worship. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.